Welcome to the Journal of the Southwest Radio Hour, a production of the University of Arizona Southwest Center. I'm Jeff Bannister. This episode of the Radio Hour, a full feature story, is written, narrated, and produced by Patricia Schwartz. Schwartz grew up in the Sonoran Desert and lived and worked in Latin America for a time before beginning graduate studies last year in the University of Arizona School of Geography, Development, and Environment. She has also worked for the Watershed Management Group, an organization focused on protecting Tucson's watersheds through community-based education and restoration programs. Patricia brings all of this experience together in this beautifully written and narrated reflection on the Sonoran Desert Monsoon. As much a phenomenon of weather as it is of culture, politics, and, of course, survival in an increasingly hot and arid region. How do we understand the relationship between the seasonal monsoon and Sonoran Desert cities? How is biological life adapting to new weather patterns transformed by greenhouse gas emissions? And what are the social justice implications of these changes for how we design and inhabit our cities? Schwartz's piece touches on all of these questions through interviews, analysis, and vivid personal reflection. We hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we have. I spent memorable parts of my childhood in the lands of the Pascuayaki and Tohono Oto, what was known to me as Tucson. My cousins lived in a house near the Agua Caliente Wash, an ephemeral creek bed running through the eastern part of the city. Due to recent decades of development, the Agua Caliente spends most of the year looking like a rocky, river-shaped dust field. But like many Sonoran Desert City kids, the wash was my great outdoors. No asphalt, no rules. Guarded instead by jumping cactus, thorny shrubs, and an array of other obstacles raising the stakes of our scrappy hide-and-capture games ever higher. The scars left on my knees and ankles today reveal that I lost pretty frequently, both to my cousins and to the landscape. But one of the most incredible things about these lands is their capacity to change dramatically overnight. Just as the desert reminds us that nothing gold nor green can stay, Endless summers, too, are temporary. What's here eventually washes away. It wasn't until one late summer night when I first saw the wash flooded by a monsoon storm that I came to understand the deeper meaning of its name. That night, the toads in the creek bed and on the adjacent streets were so plentiful that my cousin's diversion of trying to catch them was far from sporting. I admittedly was more inclined to keep my distance from the creatures. I was overwhelmed by the spontaneously teeming landscape. I grew up in Phoenix, a massive city two hours to the north, which had long since entombed most of its discernible creeks in concrete-lined canals, shuttling small quantities of water imported all the way from the Colorado River. I had seen no amphibians there. I later learned that the first big monsoon rainstorm of the year dynamizes these and other creatures out of their burrows and into a one-night-only wetland. Couch's spadefoot toads are beckoned by the low-frequency vibrations of thunder. They somehow manage to recognize the signal from the haze of their dormant state, estivation, like hibernation but for the warm seasons. A premature guess from some other rumbling sound would strand them in a desolate sunscape but they emerge with remarkable precision, all together, every year. For amphibians like the spadefoot and the Sonoran Desert Toad, the whole of mating season is basically concentrated into one or two raucous late summer nights. This frenzy is their first time above ground in over ten months, and it shows. 
Peppering the surface of the wash, shrub-like creosote in tandem respond to another alarm. It is these plants that carry the very scent of rain. Each one of these bushes is in fact part of an interconnected crown of genetic clones. Its omniscient central root mass dilates every capillary in every branch of every plant to take advantage of forthcoming moisture. The far-flung shoot systems of this elder might grow several centimeters after a big monsoon, a staggering growth spurt in the desert. The seeds of the velvet mesquite tree germinate after receiving their seasonal initiation. Being swept into a flash flow can allow them to shed their summer skin and sprout. This process is an essential part of creating the little shade that exists here. Gamble's quail pay attention to plant responses. They're looking for grasses they'll need to build a nest, now malleable after being softened in the rain. And tomorrow, a chorus of bird calls will be heard overhead. Kestrels and hawks will be looking for their share of the feast the rain has prepared. In monsoon season, washes become epicenters of life after a long and desperate summer. They are the living sanctuary, preserving the desert's magic through the toughest parts of the year. Climate scientists admit that the patterns of the North American monsoon effectively elude us. With all of the atmospheric modeling we can muster, it remains one of our least knowable storm systems, difficult to predict. Yet during the first major event of the season, it's impossible to suggest that the native creatures of this land hold anything but a perfect understanding. The instantaneous convergence I witnessed that night occurs every year, with precise synchronicity and without miscalculation, if only humans and their climate-altering habits stay out of the way. As our settlements systematically run perennial rivers dry, the residents of these distributary habitats become entirely reliant on limited, large storms to rehydrate once-flowing, now-polluted streams. And it isn't just the dust and dry winds of summer that get washed away. In desert cities, we have other reasons to call them washes. If draining our rivers was a crime, those of us who stick around through the Tucson summer look to the washes for absolution. This widespread, interconnected system of arroyos and washes has been called the desert's natural draining system. So, it also serves as a gutter, charged with sweeping away evidence of our civilization's dysfunctionalities and that which we relegated to our lowest elevations. After a monsoon, you will also find styrofoam polar pop cups, unwanted furniture, weapons, diapers, expired campaign signs, and remnants of encampments in washes. In light of the strain on arid lands river systems from climate change and unceasing development, I wondered how long scientists figure that the current system can keep washing away our byproducts, as it seems to now, and rejuvenating our ecosystems. I started with a climatologist, Dr. Greg Garfin of the University of Arizona, whose work on water issues aims to integrate insights from the natural sciences to social and political decision-making. I'm a climatologist. I work on climate impacts and adaptation, primarily in the Southwest United States. I work with various kinds of resource managers who need climate information to make decisions. Monsoon, that word derives from an Arabic word, mosim, 
which describes a seasonal change in the wind direction. And accompanying that change is also a um, change in the character of precipitation. There are many monsoons. They're the most powerful seasonal feature in climates around the earth. The biggest factor in creating the monsoon is a contrast in temperatures between the land surface and the ocean. Oceans take a lot longer to heat up. Uh, as we go through the seasonal cycle, the air is essentially drawn from over the ocean onto the land. That, so that contrast is the, the main driving factor. It's called the North American monsoon because it really originates and has its center in uh, north central Mexico. So up here in Arizona, New Mexico, southern Utah, southern Colorado, we're really at the northern fringe of this phenomenon. Even on the fringe, monsoons are dramatic showings of force. But what do these deluges mean to our water systems, and what might happen if they change? So, so monsoon doesn't just refer to a summer season. There's actually a winter monsoon and a summer monsoon. In the case of the North American monsoon, it's more apparent in the summertime. Southern Arizona and northern Mexico receives at least 50% of its annual precipitation in the summertime. And as you go a little further south, more and more of the annual precipitation is received in the summertime rather than in the winter. So just thinking about the dependence of the region on the summer precip, you're going to want to do everything you possibly can to take advantage of any predictability that there might be. Farmers and ranchers uh, have in the past, they've been able to look south into Mexico and see those thunderstorms uh, starting to mass up, and then they could get an idea of, you know, okay, it looks like it's going to hit us in several days or a week or something along those lines. Ranching in Arizona and Sonora depends on summer grasses. That's the primary feed for cattle. So changes to summer precipitation um, affect a lot. Summer precip can recharge soil moisture and alluvial aquifers, those aquifers near the riverbeds, and that summer precipitation is really important for fish species because part of our peculiar pattern of precipitation is that we have this very dry forest summer. So generally between April and the beginning of July, some years, you know, we may get almost no precipitation. Now, it's a very stressful season. So the summer rains are really important to essentially rescue wildlife and vegetation. Those summer rains are important for storm flows. Storms move sediment in the configuration of sandbars and other things in riverbeds. Despite multiplying threats, annual creek bed rituals still showcase vibrant life. 
The fervor of their participants serves as some kind of buttress to protect the soul of the Sonoran Desert itself from washing away. But I've heard that our biannual monsoon, their only lifeline, may be in danger. Well, okay, so with the North American monsoon, one of the factors in driving the monsoon is going to be how much snow was there in the winter. And then the ocean temperatures in the Pacific and in the Gulf of California are really important for setting up warm, moist air that gets entrained into our region. So it, it's, it's a tricky old son of a gun to, uh, to try to predict. The climate projections for the future, those depend on future emissions of heat-trapping gases, commonly referred to as greenhouse gases. But if, if we just sort of limit our thinking about this to continued high emissions, then probably we'll end up with less precipitation. Uh, the odds of that increase as you go south. Most robust projections that we have right now say that we'll end up with less spring precipitation, so that could be an even more stressful season, a longer, drier season. And we know that that's the season when we're most at risk for wildfires. There's a lot of uncertainty about the projections for summer and fall. For this part of the country, the hardest ones to predict. But regardless of how much rain we get, we need to take temperature and evapotranspiration into account. And the projections for increased temperature, if we continue to have increased emissions, those projections are quite confident. So there's a good chance that aridity will increase in our region. Summer temperatures in the over 200,000 border-spanning square miles of the Sonoran Desert already average 105-degree highs, sometimes climbing past 110 degrees Fahrenheit. It's hard to imagine what added heat and aridity might be like, but that might not be the only challenge exacerbated by climate change. A common saying rings true here, too. When it rains, it pours. This might be a little counterintuitive, but... One of the things we anticipate is that storms will be more intense. So even if our amount of precipitation overall does not increase, we could anticipate getting it in more intense um, moisture-laden bursts. And that's because uh, as you warm up the atmosphere, it can hold more moisture. Every year, we see that effect if we contrast winter clouds, which tend to be lower in the atmosphere and um, have kind of a flatter profile, with summer clouds, which tower really high into the atmosphere. So we can see that every year. And ironically, even as we might expect to get more drought, we may get more of these kind of gully washer storms or big tropical storms that can uh, dump a lot of moisture in a relatively short amount of time and might increase uh, flood risks. Flash floods are a serious threat in the desert. Monsoons cause major damage in cities across the region every year, damage which can be exacerbated by political and economic disparities plaguing the borderlands. In response, planners and hydrologists here are working on designs for the built environment 
that reframe storms as constructive forces and simultaneously have environmental justice benefits. Do you want to just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your relationship to the Sonoran Desert borderlands region, um, both as a human and as a researcher? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, of course. My name is Adriana Zuniga Teran, and I am um, from Mexico. I am Mexican. I was born in Monterrey, uh, Mexico, which is in the northeast part of the country, so another borderland region. And I also lived in Sonora for a number of years. I came to the University of Arizona to do my master's in architecture and then into a PhD program in arid lands resource sciences with a minor in global change. And then I did a postdoc at the Udall Center for Studies in Public Policy in Water Security. And I started merging all my um, background and found a niche on green infrastructure in cities that kind of combine all of these elements. So uh, personally, I am an immigrant. I, I've lived in this borderland region for many, many years. I'm entrenched to the desert to water issues on both sides. And then as a scientist, um, mostly focusing on how to increase water security in cities. As we know, the world is becoming increasingly urbanized. It's estimated that by 2050, 70% of the population will be living in cities, which have become especially vulnerable to climate change effects due to their density and the implementation of unsustainable infrastructure. The often unplanned and rapid development of many cities, especially those under differing governance systems, poses particular challenges. Well, Nogales really represents other sister cities along the U.S.-Mexico border. And when it rains, there's a lot of severe consequences. For example, in Mexico, when it rains, it floods. It's really a, a big problem because of, of the planning or lack of planning, really, that took place in Nogales, Sonora where they paved the washes. They are empty most of the time. So they became their streets. Uh, they didn't leave like a, a canal for the water. No. So when it rains, guess what? The streets become river. And it's a, a very, very dangerous situation. The international cities of Nogales, Arizona and Nogales, Sonora, about 60 miles south of Tucson, are a salient example. Ambos Nogales was once a single community, predating Arizona's statehood. It is now divided by a heavily guarded steel wall, 25 feet tall and recently covered in razor-sharp concertina wire. It can take hours for locals to pass through this barrier. Other migratory species and natural resources like water are often restricted from doing so entirely. The key to understand this binational community is that water flows north. So for better or worse, flows from Mexico to the United States. After 2001, uh, the border wall was more solid and not permeable, and that acted as a barrier for stormwater, and it stopped the water from flowing north. So Nogales, Sonora floods horribly every rainy season, and the population gets really, you know, desperate because the, the city stopped, the damage to the infrastructure. So people pull the manholes of the wastewater system in hopes of reducing the flooding. So stormwater is combined with wastewater. And Mexican wastewater is treated in the U.S. because, again, water flows north. 
So not only stormwater, but also wastewater. The wastewater from the two cities is treated in a binational treatment plant in Rio Rico, like around 12 miles north of the border. But when it rains, stormwater and debris and trash and everything you can imagine gets combined with sewage and is conveyed in volumes that exceed every treaty signed. And on top of that, the conveyance system that conveys wastewater to the treatment plant, the International Outfall Interceptor, IOI, it's in horrible conditions. It needs maintenance. And so it leaks. So we have sewage in the water bodies in Nogales, Arizona, which is a major public health issue and violates every water quality regulation. So my point is in in a border cities or, or sister cities, whatever happens on one side of the border affects the other side. Walls can increase that, but you cannot forget that you are in this binational community because you are interrelated. All the issues have an origin or an outcome on the other side, and we have to treat these issues in a regional perspective to really understand uh, what are the problems and how we can tackle them in a holistic way. Integrating the frameworks of urban resilience and environmental justice with her planning and architecture background gives Dr. Zuniga Tadan an interesting perspective on how to tackle water management issues. I wanted to talk with her about some potential for urban solutions to what are thought of as environmental problems. Water can be a hazard, like causes flooding and, and damage your infrastructure and properties. It's a hazard, but then it's also a resource because there's not a lot of water. So green infrastructure gets water to be treated in situ. So it's not uh, contaminated with non-point source pollutants or anything. And instead of doing damages, it's really a very effective way to manage stormwater, decentralize the system so it doesn't have to be transferred and conveyed to a treatment plant down the road, but the soil infiltrates it into the aquifer, it cleans it naturally, and in the meantime, irrigate the vegetation that can really spare us from the impacts of climate change. Trees and plants and pollinators and attracting wildlife and butterflies and creating habitat. Dr. Zuniga Tadan and her colleagues are part of a growing movement towards retrofitting cities with green infrastructure to replace what is generally known as gray infrastructure, like the open-air canals, asphalt parking lots, and concrete expanses which characterize our cities. In essence, this means that they're taking cues from the landscape, using native and organic materials to restore the natural processes of infiltration and purification that have been disrupted and replaced with stormwater drains into eroded washes. In most cases, passive strategies are cheaper and easier to sustain than other green tech solutions garnering investment dollars. In semi-arid lands, they often take the form of simply digging out basins, making small cuts in concrete curbs, and waiting for desert vegetation to reclaim its roadsides by the power of the monsoon. And we are um, engaging with schools on both sides of the border. We've started in Nogales, Sonora, in a middle school, and we are doing green infrastructure, engaging the students, the, the faculty, the staff, and we are engaging our own students, my students at the University of Arizona, because, you know, something magical we learned 
that K-12 students, they really look up to university students, not to middle-aged women talking. It's really youth to youth, learning on how to design collectively a basin in this collaborative effort. The relative simplicity and thus political feasibility of these interventions have gained them significant popularity. Cities the world over have been coming out with green infrastructure plans in recent years. Eliminating the need for expensive resource input and regular upgrades, stormwater retrofits present a uniquely accessible hope for underfunded, urbanized areas to improve public health and decrease environmental disturbances. However, many advocates are taking note of the persistent inequities in the distribution of this type of green space, continuing to mirror other urban inequities. Through applied studies of Tucson, Dr. Zuniga Tedan's work has shown how lower-income neighborhoods overlap with hotspots, or regions that frequently reach temperatures hazardous to public health and offer limited respite from the sun. Studies from researchers like Dr. Garfin demonstrate that areas like these have shown about a 3.8-degree increase over the last 30 years, as Tucson's population has doubled in size. In thinking about stormwater, we also have somewhat of a paradox in that heat trap areas are also experiencing some of the most damaging floods. In the distribution of green infrastructure or green space in general, these inequities persist everywhere in the world. Um, Particularly in the United States, how did these inequities come about? Um, It's both intentional and unintentional. So let me talk a little bit about the intentionality of inequities. Well, it remotes back to before the civil rights movement, before the Equal Opportunity Housing Act that was passed in 1968. If you were uh, people of color, there was a lot of discrimination in housing against getting a loan or being able to live in a white neighborhood. So that resulted in the homogenization of neighborhoods. Redlining, the process of segregation of the housing sector she's describing here, has cropped up a lot in the recently broadened national discussion around the consequences of prolonged institutionalized racism for Black and other communities of color. In the period when residential areas of many modern cities were being planned out, the U.S. government drew actual red lines around these communities, prohibiting banks from making loans there. Even now, over 40 years after the Housing Act, Banks have been caught using redline maps to deny loans, and most originally redline neighborhoods remain at the lowest ends of the accumulated wealth and financial stability gap. There were other more subtle types based on, on your sex, on your disability, even your family status. If you were a single uh, woman, you could not get a loan and so forth. But we see a this record of these trends and, and we have legacies, right? of these inequities, and that's what builds up across time. And we have low-income neighborhoods that are mostly composed of minorities. In southern Arizona, it would be mostly Hispanics. And that's one part. The second part of the intentional building inequities is that we link uh, property taxes to funding for services. So schools in a wealthy neighborhood has more funding than a school that uh, is located in a low-income neighborhoods. And that determines, you know, the future of, of the individuals, but also the services like fire and police and healthcare and a lot of those things are linked to property taxes. So these inequities are enhanced. And then um, the third part is the urban design. After World War II, there was a mass adoption of the automobile 
and then the design of neighborhoods were built to discourage transit across neighborhoods like cul-de-sacs, gates, fences, and so on. So it's even impossible to walk through a nice neighborhood or you are seen like a trespasser. And then some just basic neoliberal processes, the commodification of urban space, it's, it's more expensive. It's just you can't afford it. And that is linked to land tenure. So if property prices rise, what about renters? Then your rent rises and then you cannot afford to live there and you have to move elsewhere. We see inequities enhanced with that. By design of the built environment, inequities are inherited and their causes reproduced. Water planners working to address environmental degradation must also contest ingrained environmental injustices. Predicaments like that of green gentrification represent the more subtle side of the adaptation and so-called sustainability conversation we don't always hear. Yeah, um, green gentrification is when you create a park in, a, for example, a low-income neighborhood because they are deprived of vegetation. You want to address these uh, injustices intentionally. And you create this magnificent park, and then you have a lot of attraction to this place. Then property prices surrounding that park start to rise. Of course, there's a lot of programs and yoga in the morning, and you know, uh, you can walk your dog, and it attracts these wealthy people there. And then low-income people, families, are displaced. And that's what green gentrification is, the, the existence of this new park is driving low-income people away. And then I can also identify the lack of public participation in programs for greening. They are very much top-down, or they didn't include the voices of minorities in, in the development or the design of those programs. And I'll give you an example of the rebate program here for rainwater harvesting. Uh, a rebate, well, in essence, you need money up front, right, to get reimbursed later, but you need money uh, in your savings. Then land tenure, renters are not going to apply for rebates. It's not their property. So that's also a voice not heard. The focus of urban planning and engineering projects has predominantly been economic and monetized, as evidenced through the standard use of tools like cost-benefit analyses and risk assessments, which prioritize technical and financial outcomes and decision-making, often at the expense of the human dimension. Applying blanket solutions to problems experienced differently by different populations is insufficient for successful adaptation towards healthier cities. The environmental justice movement and green infrastructure recognizes that these interventions are already behind in addressing underlying issues. Um, one way to mitigate the gentrification would be not, not to think so much as the intervention of greening, but rather to look at the sources of, of the inequities, this segregation that occurred due to the, the discrimination on race, that one way to mitigate those inequities is to provide affordable housing everywhere, even in a, a rich uh, neighborhood. Let's, let's allow zoning for, you know, for a rental unit above a garage or to split uh, a single family residence in, in two units. Sometimes that's not allowed in zoning. But if you can incorporate some apartment um, units, dwelling units, renters in wealthy neighborhoods, 
having a mixed income family distribution throughout the entire city as a way to address inequities. So it's a, a little bit of trial and error, but we've seen many cases in which top-down approaches, they don't work. We have the example of Hermosillo. They had this great idea of doing green infrastructure across the city and they spend a lot of money. They actually in, involved consultants and, and created design guidelines and you have green infrastructure everywhere. But then no one maintained it. The plants died. <laughs> it was a big failure. And there are some organizations now emerging in Hermosillo, like uh, Caminantes del Desierto, that are planting trees and engaging the community on their own. It's not a government-led organization. It's a citizen-driven uh, organization. It's very motivating to see people seeing the benefits of greening and wanting to do them on their own. So they knock on people's doors and say, hey, we would like to plant a tree on your front yard. Would you water it? You have to involve and engage the community because that's the only way that decentralized green infrastructure can, can really happen. Otherwise, who has the capacity to maintain everything across the city? There is no organization that can do that efficiently. So the community can take action there, can really adopt green infrastructure, but only if they were engaged, if they were part of the process, if they planted that tree, if they were asked if they wanted a tree, first of all. And then if we have buying from the community, we can have more successful interventions. Sonoran cities on both sides of the border are becoming incubators for green stormwater management. But the ultimate solution requires broader collaboration. The torrents of water flowing through the bisected city of Nogales, for example, are a reminder that monsoon precipitation pays no mind to our boundaries. What I learned is that um, at the local level, you know, Nogales and Nogales, there are no such divisions. This is a very permeable uh, community. There's a lot of back and forth. People have... Uh, relatives on the other side. At the national level, however, there's a lot of division of closing borders and, you know, lots of legislation and who gets to come and go and, and all that. But those issues are not such a big deal at the local level. So that's where hope is with the communities. They know each other and they cooperate a lot. And we have seen amazing examples where there's a fire on one side of the border and you know, on the Mexican side, and the U.S. sends their fire trucks across the wall to help, um, you know, mitigate the fire. So that's, that's where I would put my, my bet into local actions and, and partnering with people on the ground. There are a lot of possibilities in that regard. And we are part of the Binational Border Solutions Alliance. It's an organization of universities along the border with partners in Mexico to explore common issues across the entire U.S.-Mexico border. So that's an ongoing effort, a little bit more than three years old. We've, been, we've done uh, some workshops. We went to Washington, D.C. this February to present to the National Academy of Sciences to really draw attention to border issues. From a geological and climatological perspective, Dr. Garfin also identifies the importance of thinking about our problems more logically, at the natural scale of watersheds. 
Working within shared regions determined by the way that water actually flows liberates us to think more effectively about the importance of human inputs to environmental solutions. Thinking through what, what are the ripple effects about other folks in the watershed or what might be the um, impact on other land or water users. So really thinking about this in a collaborative way with community partners, with scientists, and thinking about it in terms of a watershed landscape and social learning. Scientists learn from participants in the process about how to frame their questions better, about how to do the science better, about how to roll it out and communicate it better. There's learning happening on all ends, and it needs to be um, a multi-directional kind of learning. It can't just be about physical or natural sciences. That's just one part of the equation. It also, there's a lot that has to do with the vulnerability of different populations, their access to resources. Um, if you just try to solve a problem from a scientific point of view, you might come up with a solution that, that might create more problems. Luckily, urban dwellers already have a pretty good idea about how to implement practical strategies. We are borrowing from hydrological processes themselves, from the practices of the land's original scientists and stewards on its first and remaining nations, and, of course, from the rhythms of the abundant web of plant and animal life which evolved here. Stormwaters are a part of a city's lifeblood, too, and they are not to be squandered. Under the compounding pressures of water scarcity, resource inequities, and an uncertain climactic future, borderland cities are rebuilding their relationship with the monsoon. This requires acknowledging its magnitude— far exceeding any of the concrete, steel, or cartographic boundaries we've tried and failed to impose upon it. Ultimately, we all want the same thing, to enhance quality of life. I love the desert, but the human part is the tricky part, and we have to collaborate, to partner, because together we can do more. There is no um, isolated effort to invest in this engagement effort because it takes time. So partnering is key and hearing a diversity of voices to develop programs, they are, they are more likely to be effective that way. So that would be my takeaway. <laughs>